Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. I'm your host, Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I am thrilled to have you here this week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you for um, helping grow this show into what it has become and what it is going to be. Now, this week, we have a real treat for you. This week, I really like doing <laughs> the episodes like I, I'm, I'm doing this week because this week, we're getting into a lot of economics and a lot of history, which are two of my favorite subjects. And we're combining them this week, which is my, just my favorite thing to do. Um, and that is, we are going to be going over uh, the myths and realities that surround the the topic of uh, monopolies and, and big businesses. And what is government's role, if any, and what is the actual effective result of what government does after they intervene. Um, so we have a lot going for you for that. We're going to break it down into a few different parts. First, lay out the, the theory aspect of it and the economics behind uh, monopolies and, and a couple different ways. Um, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. And then we'll go into the history and how the history actually backs it up. You have been um, not painted the whole story because I guarantee you, if you are an American citizen, if you went to school here in the United States, if you grew up in, in the public education system, the, the painting that was painted for you about big, large corporations becoming monopolies has always been the same cookie-cutter, almost cartoonish, uh, evil villain kind of way, and that's not the whole picture. Um, so we're going to break that down and and expose some of the uh, some of the the myths and the realities behind monopolies, and then we're going to take those two things and apply it to what uh, we can actually look at today. Um, because I have a couple of examples throughout history, and I'm going to take one example and apply it to a couple things that we have uh, that we can look at today as an example of how the market worked then and how it works now in a way to uh, disrupt monopolies. And also at the end of the program, we got a couple pretty big announcements that I'm very excited to share with you. So, so stick around if, if you want to hear that. Uh, so let's get into it. The first thing that I, I want to make abundantly clear is that a monopoly is in all intents and purposes, if it is a, a monopoly in the sense of uh, prices keep going up, one single industry has all the control, um, there's no competition there to challenge it, then that monopoly is a government creation. Governments create monopolies. They do not prevent monopolies. That goes, that runs actually straight in the face of what we've always been told. The, the cookie cutter image that you've always been told, I guarantee you, has been that monopolies use the free market to acquire so much power and so much control in the economy that, uh, that there is no competition, that all competition ceases and everyone bows down to that uh, monopoly king of the industry. And that's just simply not the case. Uh, the, the first question that I, I have to, to beg is, is a monopoly inherently bad? And to that I say, no, as long as, 
as long as it is in a truly free market. Why is that? Well, because there are two different types of monopolies. Um, a monopoly in a free market is, you could call it a market monopoly, you could call it a um, efficient monopoly, you could call it a, a voluntary monopoly, a monopoly that obtains its wealth and its influence through the marketplace, it is not killing competition. A monopoly that gets to that level of power, which is very rare, mind you, in a total and complete free market. We, we will go into it and, and find that only true monopolies that occur only happen because of government intervention. But what there is, is the is the is the inherent evil in a single industry, and what is the inherent good in breaking that single industry up into several different industries? In fact, economics would imply economics would uh, and and logic for that matter would dictate that if you just break it up, they're still at the top. Everyone who you broke up into into fractional industries, they're still at the top. They're still colluding. Now you just prevented a lot of different competition, a lot of different uh, 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 industries that would have otherwise be, been competing with that market, with that industry. You are now preventing them from competing effectively. You are preserving, much like how with taxes – um, when when you have a, uh, a higher tax bracket on the rich, does that really hurt the people who are already there? No, of course not. It doesn't hurt the rich. They th That's why whenever you see, um, and, and this is another topic for another day, but I just want to skim over this, but uh, there's this video that Bernie Sanders keeps sharing um, that talks about patriotic millionaires. And uh, and it's a bunch of wealthy people who just say, yeah, I'll raise my taxes. You know, you talk to any any millionaire. Of course, we want your, you to, to raise my taxes. Just go ahead and raise it. Why on earth are they saying that? Are, are they insane? Do they do they really not want to keep their money? They're saying that because they can survive it. The people who have to try to get to their level, their competition, their up and coming, their rising stars uh, in in the competitor field, they are the ones who are going to be hurting, not the people who are already at the top. Everything that occurs through legislation is done so coercively, and because of that, it ultimately helps the people who can weather the storm. The people who can't are the people who are trying to get to where they are. That's their main competition. So whenever you whenever you make a law, they have economic consequences. Well, the same thing can be said about monopoly laws. With all things being voluntary, market monopolies, um, if and when they do happen, it's because of really one or one of two things. One, they are the most efficient. They have provided the best product or service or the cheapest product or the cheapest service. They are at the top because they have beat out all of their competitors. Not because that they killed all their competitors. Not because they forced consumers to uh, buy their products. They cannot do that. In a voluntary economy, monopolies that occur in a completely voluntary economy cannot happen without without voluntary exchange, meaning somebody has to get something out of what that business is trying to sell to them. 
whether it's the product or the service, they have to see it as a fair exchange. Nobody's holding a gun to their head saying, we don't really care if if this uh, if if this product is no good. We don't really care if the if the services are unsafe or or not uh, efficient. That doesn't happen. In fact, it is the efficiency. As long as a monopoly and a market economy exist, they are doing so because they are not taking a single thing for granted. In a market economy, there's there's a, a, a quote that I really uh, really like from from Winston Churchill, and it he he basically says, "Success is not final, and failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts." Now that can be applied in a lot of different uh, ways of life, including in economics, because in a completely voluntary society, if if the public, if your consumers, or even if your workers are not happy with what you are doing, then you can fail like that. You can hit rock bottom overnight. It doesn't matter if you're the top. And this is this is in part a, a problem that we are currently having with our income inequality debate. The issue is not income inequality. The issue is income mobility. It doesn't matter how many people are rich and how many people are poor. What matters is how easy is it for you to go from rich to poor or from poor to rich. And especially at in in the you know in in the early turn of the century of of the 1900s um and and a little bit before that it was incredibly easy to rise through the market because that's what our economy was doing at the time it was going through that growth phase of of unfettered capitalism we were seeing the benefits from that there were a lot of things that we look back at that we say, oh my gosh, I can't believe those things happened. But at the time, they looked back at their past and said, oh my gosh, I cannot believe we have so many blessings at this time. Yeah, there were some some bad working conditions in some aspects, and there were some um, bad wages in some aspects. But they got better because of competition, despite the fact that there were some market monopolies at the time. And they were not, by any means... Uh, by by any, any stretch of the imagination, they were not solidified in that position of power. In fact, as we'll get into in a little bit, it's because of the market that some of them lost their power, not because of the government. The reason why monopolies are actually, in effect, so very, very rare um, is because that in a natural economy, anyone who rises to that level of power invites opposition if they can effectively through voluntary exchange beat that competition then they are doing nothing wrong they are doing absolutely nothing wrong in fact if they get to that position to where they're the single industry then they cannot raise their prices they cannot exploit their consumers they cannot uh uh, treat their workers poorly, or else that invites more competition. And guess what? That competition will win out in the end. You cannot do that in a purely market economy, with everything being voluntary. Now, where you can do that is with government prevention. In fact, this is where a lot of people get messed up, is because businesses, big businesses, they love government. 
Big business and being pro-business and being pro-market are two very, very different things. And most businesses that have a lot of power um, in today's day and age, they're not in, in power today necessarily because they uh, because because they were the the best, the most efficient, the most uh, the the most affordable. Um, they provide the best services or the best products. It's not necessarily the case all the time. Sometimes it is. As as broken as our capitalistic system is, or crony capitalistic system is today, many cases uh, still exist to where the the little guy can still become an overnight success with a lot a lot of hard work over the years. But the problem today is that there is so much government regulation. There is so much um, taxation involved in, in business. That is what is preventing competition from coming forward. You cannot, you cannot whatsoever pre- prevent competition from coming forward in a truly voluntary and market economy. You cannot. Any sort of industry with any sort of power invites competition. It's natural. The only time that competition is killed is with government intervention. And that's what I want to look into. I'm, I'm really trying to roll through this really fast because there's so much material here that I have written down that I want to try to get through um, in an efficient uh, time frame. Ironically enough, we're talking about efficiency. So uh, I want to get into a little bit of the history about this. So what's the first name as a monopolist that you probably think of? When you think of monopolies, who do you typically think of? The first person or even the first, uh, the first company that you think of? I'm willing to bet that you're thinking right now probably of John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. More than likely. There's a few other names that might come up, and 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 there's uh, certainly some some other people that we're getting into here, but the first and most obvious case is that of John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. Was he a monopolist in what a what the textbooks try to illustrate a monopolist to be? A monopolist has control of a single industry. Okay, he 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 was kind of that. <laughs> he did have a lot of control over the oil industry. Was it because um, that he bought out all of his competition, then as soon as he bought out all of his competition, that he just kept all of his power so concentrated that prices went up and up and up for oil, and no no, no common man could afford it, and things were just outrageously out overpriced? Is that what happened? And then it was not until the government came in and broke up the monopoly that finally the monopoly ended. Finally, John D. Rockefeller got a taste of his own medicine. Is that what actually happened? No, not whatsoever. John D. Rockefeller was an efficient monopolist. In a sense, a true market monopolist. Meaning that he obtained his influence and his wealth through the free enterprise system, not through coercion, like so many people gain power today. And I, I, we don't have monopolists in the technical sense because obviously it's, the, it's against the law. It's a very hard, especially when you get to that level of, of influence to keep the government off your back. But as I said, there is nothing inherently, 
there's there's nothing inherently wrong about a monopoly versus inherently virtuous about a duopoly or or having a a family or a a couple little heads here and there controlling the industry instead of one okay there's there's nothing inherently good about that but we'll get into that here in a little bit first of all rockefeller was a market monopolist and didn't actually kill competition he actually kept competition alive because of what he was doing because so many people saw Rockefeller as an investment in their own personal finances or business. Let me give you a few little numbers here. From 1870 to 1885, in the very end of, of, the, of the decade, right after the Civil War, right in the heat and the heart of the Industrial Revolution, John D. Rockefeller reduced refining costs from three cents a gallon to point four five two cents a gallon a little perspective is that some of his competitors tried to lower their costs um from 26 uh, cents a gallon to eight cents a gallon in the same time frame but they just could not keep up so please tell me is his vice is his inherent wrongdoing that he made oil affordable is is that what made it so wrong surely not and this it flies straight in the face of what we're supposed to believe that monopolies create is this uh, is this economy where prices are just so ungodly high because a single industry has total control of their prices why is this not the case in the case of john d rockefeller because he still had to compete despite being the best man in the game he still had to try to make his shareholders his consumers his workers he still had to try to make these people happy he still had to try to make these people understand that he was the best man in the game that never stops you're always competing especially for a man like John D. Rockefeller. I mean, you can say a lot of things, but don't tell me that, uh, that he didn't want to try to make more money. <laughs> you, can, you can tell me, and, and I'll probably oblige to some things, but come on. Even to this day, he was the wealthiest man in history. Rockefeller was successful because he was efficient. That is the opposite of coercive monopolies. As Standard Oil's peak, refined oil prices were at their lowest in history. Now, some of the other, uh, some of the other complaints about Standard Oil, and, and there'll be a few, uh, a few links to this, so you can you can look at some of these up in the show notes. Um, but one of the other complaints about Standard Oil and monopolies in general, Standard Oil bought out the competitors, and thus that in itself hurt competition. Well, is this necessarily the truth? And What's the whole picture behind it, even if it is? This is partially true. He did buy out many competitors. But in fact, it was the competitors that sought him for the most part. They had a failing uh, business. They had a failing refinery or plant. And they went to Rockefeller because they knew if he would buy it, since it's completely voluntary... Since nobody was sticking a gun in their face saying, you have to buy this at my ridiculously low um, bid. Since nobody was doing that, Rockefeller had to purchase the refineries or the plants, their businesses, at cost, at market value. Because of that, they took many of his competitors that he, quote, bought out, took the money, 
and went back and started a whole new business. They went back and started a whole new plant and tried to learn from their mistakes. Their competitors didn't die off. In fact, he enriched their competitors to go out and and become even more ambitious entrepreneurs. Now, many of their his competitors, those who didn't do that, a lot of them also absorbed into the uh, Standard Oil uh, company. And if you're going to absorb into the Standard Oil company, do you think it's better to have a, uh, a begrudging workforce, people who just don't want to be there? Especially when you're trying to be the top of the world in the economy. When you're trying to be one of the wealthiest men in the world, and he certainly achieved that. Do you really think it's better to have your consumers, or excuse me, your workers be begrudgent and not really wanting to work for you? No, of course not. You want people who are going to put out their max productivity. So obviously, what Rockefeller did, he, he did not offer them just really shitty positions or anything. Many of their positions transferred over to Standard Oil, and those who didn't often, like I said, went out and started their own uh, own businesses with the money that they got from Rockefeller. All of this is what mutual uh, competition does. Now, in, in a monopoly situation, as I said before, you can be the most efficient, uh, the best, the cheapest, whatever, or you could be the first in the business. For Rockefeller's case, it was a little bit of both. In today's day and age, this is incredibly, this is even more difficult than it was back then to become a, a, a monopoly, and especially, especially to keep a monopoly with the way that technology and, um, and industry is revolutionizing everything. All the old guards of, of everything, everything. Whether it's um, business, whether it's economics, whether it's government, whatever. All the old guards are withering away and the engine of capitalism is proving to be the most efficient at setting people free. Without government, Rockefeller always had to compete um, to be the best. What this means is you had to be not only uh, the cheapest or the more, most affordable, but you also had to be the most efficient. You also had to be the um, basically just the best at everything, the, the best work environment, the best for your consumers, the best for your workers, the best for your shareholders, the best for everything. This is the exact opposite of what we are told monopolies are. We are told that they are the absolute worst in everything. And and what a true monopoly is, and that is, of course, a coercive monopoly or a government-approved or sometimes just plain government monopoly because we'll get into some of those things and how, how government uh, just, just has a stranglehold on certain industries. That's the only true monopoly because that fits the definition. Government is the only thing that doesn't really care about efficiency. They don't care about uh, what's the cheapest or the most affordable. You know, they they don't care about those things because there is no accountability. There always is and always has been and always will be accountability in a completely free and voluntary marketplace. Now, I want to show you an example. That was an example of an efficient, um, an, an efficient monopoly. This is going to be an example, and this is going to be another tycoon that you have heard of, and a little bit of, of backstory for them, and I'm skimming through this. Um, but this is going to be an example of a coercive monopoly and how the government maintained 
monopolies even 100 years ago, 100 plus years ago, um, and how because of capitalism and because of government eventually, uh, it was actually the Supreme Court that struck this one down, um, they said the government cannot maintain this business's, this industry's monopoly, how the market eventually led to the breakup of this monopoly. I want to bring you to the case of Gibbons versus Ogden in the Supreme Court in 1824. This is a case where the government, not the marketplace, but the government, maintained a monopoly in the state of New York um, and, and said that no other industry is allowed to compete. So it was actually the government that squashed the competition um, in this instance because they uh, held a, f a figurative gun to the heads of anyone who dared try to compete in this industry. And this is um, with the steamboat industry. At this time, steamboats were an up-and-coming industry. Um, they were quickly catching on. It was right in the, in the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, right before the giant boom that that happened in in the later half of the uh, of the century, and Ogden had a monopoly on steamboats, steamboat traffic granted by the state of New York. Any competition could have and would have been persecuted, and that's exactly what happens because Gibbons um, had a federally licensed steamboat company. And was operating in the New York, uh, on the New York, New Jersey line. So basically New York City, right around that area. Was this permissible? Was, was the case that was brought forward by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court eventually struck, uh, struck Ogden down and said, you are not allowed to, to use the, the force of the government to maintain this monopoly. So Ogden actually had to compete for once. He had a 30-year monopoly. Think of that, a 30-year monopoly just to try to get the, the steamboat industry up and running because apparently the government didn't trust the market to work it out, even, even at, in this day and age. Um, in this time of our, of our history, the government didn't trust the market to work it out. So the state of New York granted Ogden a monopoly for 30 years until the Supreme Court struck it down. After Gibbons... Um, got the go-ahead to say now you're legally allowed to compete in this in this market uh here in in new york what happened well what happened is that competition took hold and the market started working capitalism started working after the monopoly breakup and this was a coercive monopoly breakup after this steamboat fares from new york city to albany went from seven dollars a fare to $3 a fare. Well, what happened after this was a young um, partner of Gibbons named Cornelius Vanderbilt, somebody you may have heard of, somebody who eventually would become one of the first tycoons in America. Well, he broke off from Gibbons and said, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to take this uh, steamboat industry and I'm going to try it out for myself. Who says I have to stick under the uh, under the wing of Gibbons? So that's exactly what he did. Fares under Vanderbilt was becoming so affordable that trips from New York City to Philadelphia went down from $3 to $1. And this is under Vanderbilt still. New York City to Providence, Rhode Island, it went from $8. And understand, they, these are pretty high 
prices at this day and age. These, you know, $8 today is like, you know, throwaway money because of um, inflation. But at that time, this was this was possibly your entire paycheck for a, for a lot of people, especially a lot of poor people in New York. Trips from New York City to Providence, it went from $8 a fare to $4, eventually down to $1. Vanderbilt was so successful and he knew how to to really wring out the best possible prices for their consumers through the use of competition. He knew that he was getting the most benefit if his customers got the most benefit. Now please tell me how on earth, first of all, this, again, this goes straight into the face of everything we're supposed to believe about monopolies. We're supposed to believe that monopolies occur through um, the marketplace, through voluntary exchange, through unfettered capitalism. But this is a situation where this is actually the government that, that created the monopoly. And after it was struck down, it was the true, free, unfettered capitalism that brought about the competition. This is an amazing case of how it is in your best self-interest to serve your customers and consumers well. This is why the market works. This is why capitalism works. I don't see anything wrong in that. Please explain to me why that is such uh, an evil thing. When you have two parties doing so voluntarily for what's best in both of their interests. Vanderbilt was so successful at this. In fact, I read this. This is incredible, especially anyone who knows anything uh, about what is said about early tycoons and, and modern history uh, classes. This is incredible. This is just absolutely incredible. Um, the New York Evening Post even said that Cornelius Vanderbilt is the greatest practical, practical anti-monopolist in the country. Not the government, a capitalist. Now I want to to bring this full circle. How can we how can we look at this today? How can we apply this to um, some some modern examples? Because we don't really have we don't really have modern examples of uh, monopolies in the sense of a single company running an entire industry. Because obviously, like I said. Um, there are laws against that. And in fact, going back, I, I want to touch on Rockefeller uh, just for a little bit because, yeah, the monopoly, the, the trust-busting uh, laws and anti-monopoly laws, that did in part break up as a monopoly, but it wasn't the, it actually wasn't the strongest thing that led to Rockefeller's downfall. It was competition. And there are several things I'll be linking back to that in the show notes, and you can uh, read a little bit more about that in yourself. But I want to make that clear that, yeah, the the government was part of what broke up the monopoly, but it wasn't the whole picture. It was the marketplace that was the biggest driving force of breaking up his monopoly. And that is what I kind of want to touch on here in modern examples, because we don't have competition today because of the government. Because of all these laws that are supposed to prevent monopolies from happening. Again, I ask, what is so inherently good about having a couple different companies running an industry, or three or four or five, versus one? What is inherently good about that? Because they're all still at the top. Likely, they all came from the same place, if they're at that position of power. 
What that does is it prevents anybody from from merging together on the other end of the of the spectrum, coming from uh, the bottom, trying to bust up their monopoly through the marketplace. What we have today is that laws and regulations and taxes are the anti-competition forces. It's not business. It's not big business. When you have regulations that um, essentially kill, like Obamacare, for example, that that is the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, it's good in in theory. It is uh, good-hearted in nature. I'm sure a lot of people who voted for it have a lot of good ideas in mind. But please tell me how you are such a anti-corporation, anti-business, uh, social democrat, when you are effectively giving power to the large corporations because now you're telling them, you mean I don't have to compete anymore because what you're doing is going to kill these small businesses. I can handle it. I can handle the uh, the excess of regulations or the higher taxes. That's no problem. Anytime you hear uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren rail for higher regulations, higher taxes, more government intervention in the marketplace, they are batting for big business. They I don't I don't think they are willingly or consciously doing that, but they don't understand economics. They don't understand how everything that you do has an effect. There's a little bit of blowback in economics. Now, that's a, that's a little bit of a foreign policy term, but it's just as effective. Anything that government touches, they think that they don't have to apply by the laws of economics or, or just by the laws of, of, of nature. But they do. Something has to give. What ends up happening is that they are giving the big corporations and the big businesses that they claim to hate so much, they're giving them all the power through coercion. Now, I want to touch on a couple different examples of what so many people are, are trying to perceive as modern-day monopolies. And, and uh, even though they might not be monopolies in its truest sense, they are large businesses that are taking control of entire industries or, you know, are killing all the competition. Which is ironic because that's kind of what competition is. It's not competition if nobody loses. <laughs> that's that's the whole point of competition is somebody wins and somebody loses. If if nobody loses, then that's not competition. Then government is killing competition, not the marketplace. Anyway, um, a modern example of this, one of the primaries example of this is is how quickly and how effectively Amazon has acquired so much influence and so much wealth. People are looking at this, and so many leftists just hate Jeff Bezos, and which is really ironic because especially after um, a lot of this immigration stuff has been happening and he pledged to pay for so many people's colleges, the libertarian in me just loves him even more, so many illegal immigrants' uh, colleges, because he's pissing off the right with the immigration stuff, and he's pissing off the left because it's like, oh, well, that's not enough, which is absolutely hilarious because he's saying he's going to give like $30,000 to uh, to some people's education. Like, please give me $30,000 if you, if you don't want that. Um, but that's besides the point. What he has done, he went from just a small 
book selling company. That's what he did, was he sold books. Now he sells virtually everything. Did he do that because he stuck a gun to somebody's, to his competitor's face and says, you are going to be not as efficient as me so I can get ahead of you? No. Did he stick a gun to customers' faces and say, you are going to buy my products? No. He did so because he was efficient, just like what John Rockefeller did. He did not acquire his wealth and his influence through coercion. He acquired it through efficiency and meeting people's and exceeding people's demands. Beating people to the punch of what they think they know they want and need. That is what capitalism does. And now we see to the point to where um, he has bought out Whole Foods. And I think that's fantastic. Because what he has done and what he is doing with even grocery shopping is revolutionizing the entire industry. He's, it, Amazon is revolutionizing everything that we, everything that we see um, in, in business, in modern business. Now you can have food delivered to you. You don't even have to get out of the comfort of your own home. Now he's creating, um, Amazon is creating these these self, uh, it's not even self-checkout. It's it's just pick up, go, leave. You don't have to deal with a cash register or, or, or anything. You can take your food and leave and we'll bill you later. Okay, bye. See ya. I, I really don't care how much you take. No, you're still gonna get a get a get a bill for it, but go ahead, take whatever you want. No registers. You don't have to deal with with anyone who's protesting for fifteen dollars an hour. I think that is fantastic for Jeff Bezos to do, and it is the market solution to government problems once again. Now, another one, real quick, that I want to touch on is um, much like the modern day Cornelius Vanderbilt situation. What can we look at to see, well, governments are, are keeping these institutions alive and, uh, in effect, uh, preserving monopolies, but then this, this, these couple of businesses are trying to stand up to the monopolies and the government and break them apart practically through competition. What is a modern-day example of that? I look to the sharing economy, Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, even... Even, um, and this isn't in the sharing economy, but even something like Bitcoin are breaking up every old institutionalized way of doing things. Breaking up taxis, breaking up, um, breaking up the taxi cartels, breaking up uh, the hotel monopolies, to where you're even having city, local city, and even state governments saying, hold on, Uber. We're not going to have you operate here. Or hold on, Airbnb. We don't want you in New York City. That's the government preserving monopolies. Just know that. If you don't like Airbnb or Uber or even don't want to use them, that's fine. Use your own dollars to support that. But just know that you are, if you support using the government, you support preserving monopolies in these industries. You are not anti-business. You are not anti-corporations, you are not for the little guy, you are preserving the biggest businesses and the biggest industries today. Now, that was a lot of stuff that I went through. I'm going to have a lot of show notes for today because uh, we're just about out of time. Thank you so much 
for uh, listening to this program. I really appreciate your audience. I think you're a fantastic audience, and I really want to bring you the best content possible. So, to give you a little bit of a preview for things that are coming up, you may or may not have heard, and this is the first one and possibly the biggest one, um, you may or may not have heard that we... Uh, actually booked John Stossel to come on the program. Yes, that John Stossel, the the uh, old Fox Business host. He is coming on the program on February 8th, and we're going to have an exclusive interview with him. We're very excited to have him on. Um, so be sure to uh, keep a lookout for that on February 8th. It's a Thursday, just like every other week is, just like every single week is. Um, so on February 8th, be sure to tune in and listen to John Stossel uh, join the program for an exclusive interview here on the Liberty. Now, the week after that, we're going to be doing a President's Day uh, special, and it's going to be something that I kind of want to do every year from now on, um, and I'm pretty sure I am, <laughs> but this year we're going to start, it's basically going to be we're going to dissect all the presidents that you thought were good and show you how bad they truly were. And I can think of no better libertarian celebration for President's Day than doing exactly that. So for the first President's Day special that we're going to do here on the Liberty, we're going to dissect none other than conservative icon Theodore Roosevelt. You may have heard of him. He's, he's kind of a no-name president, you know. Um, and we're going to show you how atrocious he was as a president, as a person. Um, a lot of people like him because he was a badass, and I mean, yeah, he kind of was, but he was still a really bad president if you believe in limited government, if you believe in, well, I, I won't get into it. Uh, just, just tune in on February 15th for a President's Day episode. That's going to be a blast of an episode. Uh, to do so, uh, it's it's really getting into a lot of the, more of the history stuff. On um, March second through fourth, here's here's something that we finally confirmed in Washington D.C. I of course again this year will be going to Liberty Con. So that's the Students for Liberty. It was formerly International Students for Liberty Conference. Um, now it's just Liberty Con. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. I know Justin Amash is going to be there. Dave Rubin is going to be here, there, who we had on this program, of course, um, and a lot of different people. And, of course, I will be there. So if you want to come see me, if you want to come meet up with me, um, I will be recording an episode there uh, at Liberty Con in Washington, D.C. So just be on the lookout for that if you're going to be going to that. And finally, last note that I have here for you before we leave is that we are on Patreon now. Um, if you like what we do here at Outset Network, please go to Patreon and support us because these things that we are doing and many, especially many of the ideas and ambitions that we have are not going to be free. So if you support us and you want us to do more, if you want us to provide more content and and really be a part of this of this journey that we're having together to try to create something positive in the world then please consider donating to us giving us your support on patreon um, and we're we're working out a a level system on patreon so you can unlock some rewards with the higher up you you donate on that so 
um, please check that out and at least consider giving us your support because um, every dollar counts, every penny counts. Uh, it's We have some really big goals and some really big ambitions, and we need your support in order to do that. Um, so without further ado, I thank you so much for joining this program this week. Uh, it, it really is a blast to, to present these episodes to you. Please tune back next week for another episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. You can follow the show on Twitter at Liberty. Uh, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And here's this is probably the most important thing. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review so that I can know how you think that we're doing. Uh, hopefully it's, it's mostly good. And that way you'll never miss an episode or an update. So please tune back in next week. And until next time, we'll see you.